for Powder Mountain, we negotiated to buy it for $40 million. But it turned out that we only needed to put uh, $16.5 million down as a down payment. The most interesting thing is that the most expensive thing isn't actually buying the mountain. The most expensive thing was actually building the roads and the infrastructure, the water, the sewer, the power, pulling fiber optic internet up. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to learn from top founders. Quick question, how do you buy a ski mountain? That is the kind of thing I was wondering when interviewing today's guest, Elliot Bisnow. He shot to startup fame by co-founding Summit, a legendary event series which has had speakers like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Jessica Alba. He's done loads of crazy stuff, including buying Powder Mountain, now the biggest ski resort in North America. So how much did that cost? Well, we'll get to that. But first of all, let's find out about his childhood and the book he read as a kid, which would define his life. It was very grounded. My parents still live in the same house that they've had for 40 years at the end of this little street with a cul-de-sac, with a little forest in the back that they bought in the early 1980s. And my parents are still married. So it was a very safe place to live. There's a good quote, you know, the tree house is the place that protects the dreamer, you know, and it very much felt like, you know, my little tree house, you know, I could all, no matter what happened, I could come back to our home. I have a brother who's incredible and we've always been close. He's a musician. He's the opposite of me. But I just grew up in, in a place that nurtured me no matter what I did, because I was certainly, I was really out there. When I was 13, someone gave me the book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. That changed my life forever. And the book, it takes an hour to read, is about this flock of seagulls and you're not allowed to be different. There's 8,000 birds, but you can't do anything different. And this one seagull, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, he desperately wants to do spins and tricks and dives and go high and fast. But if you do anything different than the flock, you get banished. And they banish Jonathan Livingston Seagull from the flock. The book is about him finding the other misfit seagulls who've also been banished, coming together and learning, you know, how to fly high and fast and then coming back to the flock um, in the later years. And I think that book basically showed me not only was it okay to be different, to be expressive, to come out of my shell, but that was a great thing. You know, I think my experience is when you have something like a very safe, nurtured childhood, there's a lot of positives. But the other is like, I didn't just like live my life on a sailboat for eight years traveling around the world. And so I did grow up in Washington, D.C. I didn't, uh, you know, grow up in Manhattan. And so I had to break through a lot of molds, not just when I was 13, but 15, 18. As I got older, I really need to break out of my shell, if you will. And starting when I was 13, this book really said, you can do it. And this is a good thing. When my parents... When they sent me to high school, like they took all their savings and they sent my brother and I to a private school. No one in the history of our private school ever went to college and dropped out of college. So for me, when I was 16 years old, after my sophomore year, I convinced my parents to let me drop out of high school and to take a year off and go to homeschool because I was really into tennis. And I basically convinced them, you know, let me leave this private school you've spent all your savings on and let me literally go to homeschool and teach myself. And, and that had literally never happened in the history of my school. And 
Then when I went to college, I got into the University of Wisconsin, which I felt really lucky about because all the other seven schools I applied to rejected me. I ended up dropping out of college and not, you know, because, oh, screw this and I'm upset at college. Like I really loved college, but I, after starting a business in college, I really believed that, you know, the purpose of school is to learn, is to set you up for the next step in your life. And I felt that after two years of college, I learned that. And so I decided to leave school for the reason that I'd gotten out of college what I came to get. And that was another just crazy decision. Like all the friends I'd had in high school, my parents' friends, it was like Elliot, like bad Elliot, like Elliot who dropped out of college Elliot. I made these decisions not spontaneously, not erratically. I made them from really thinking through them. I made them with conviction, but these were not easy decisions to make. And basically every person we knew thought that my decisions were horrible. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about what you did. You mentioned business, you know, you're learning these things. So how did you step into the foray, the world of business? Well, the first thing is that dropping out for no reason is a really bad idea. So even when I was 16, I told my parents, look, let me take one year away from school because I could get a totally different type of education. I could actually learn how to teach myself by going to homeschool. And when I dropped out of college, it was also, look what I got out of school. I could save all this money that you're having to spend on school. And I could actually focus on the business. I thought I went to school. I thought I'm in college to get a job. Well, now I have a job that I started. So what happened for me, Dan, is when I got to college, like I think basically everybody else, like I didn't have any money. I ate this really not great dorm food, you know, and I was living a life that was set up for me. You know, it's almost like pick any classes on your schedule. You know, it's kind of like saying, well, go to McDonald's and order anything you want on the menu. Well, it's like, I don't want to be at McDonald's. I don't want to order from this menu. I want to order from a different restaurant. Like I felt pigeonholed as soon as I got to school. There were some classes I liked, like, sure, I'll get the French fries at McDonald's, but I don't want all this other stuff. And I think I had this realization like, wow, like I'm at University of Wisconsin. I really love it. But, you know, some of it's for me, but there's all these other things in the world and I have to spend four years like doing what they want me to do. And I don't want to pick from their menu of classes. Like, I don't want to go to their entrepreneur school. Like, I want to start my own business. And so, like anyone else who didn't have any money, you know, the idea of starting a business, when I realized I could do that, it blew my mind. So I basically decided from college, like, I got to figure this thing out. Like, this is, this is mind-blowing. Like, I could start my own business and it was, you know, right in 2006, where for the first time ever, like in all of world history, you could actually start a business really cheaply. And, you know, my dad, he had never been an entrepreneur and he had an idea to write an email newsletter about what was happening in real estate in Washington, D.C. Simple enough. And I said, well, if you're writing a newsletter, I could sell the ads. And I think the first thing is since, you know, neither of us had really any savings, this was a perfect business because he did the writing. We could send out a newsletter basically for no cost. There was like a way worse primitive version of Substack, you know, back then 15 years ago. But we could basically send out a newsletter for no cost. My dad could do all the writing and I could do all the sales. And so there we were. Not only did we not know that we could raise venture capital, we certainly wouldn't have been able to. And so we started a business with zero upstart costs. 
like, like literally it was like $10 a month for this newsletter service. And we sent it to a couple hundred people and there was a big box at the bottom that said subscribe for free. And then we just, you know, people would forward it around, people would subscribe and, and thus began my foray into starting a business, you know, 15 years ago with no money. And we knew, we said like, we can't just put like five or $10,000 to start a business. Like we don't have that money, let alone you hear about startups today that need a hundred thousand dollars or 500 or millions of dollars. Like we had to start a business that made money from day one. And so that was it. That was my foray into entrepreneurship. It's like, you know, rolling up my metaphorical sleeves and building a business that had to make money from the first day. And that was BizNow, right? BizNow Media. Yes. So what, what was BizNow Media's vision then versus like, what is it today? Is it still operational? Talk to us a little bit about that journey. Well, the vision was really simple. There's a great quote, the riches are in the niches. And often you find that these niche communities of people are incredibly underserved. You know, it could be the I don't know, millions of of teachers or millions of nurses or millions of real estate brokers or, again, you can go through every single niche, millions of high school athletes. And they're underserved from the standpoint that there's often no media or events for these niches. Like all the media is targeted to like big consumer style media. Right. But when you start like drilling in, it's actually pretty hard to find tailor made media for niches. And I think this has changed a lot in the last decade. But, you know, my dad was always interested in commercial real estate, which is, you know, commercial real estate. These are all the big buildings, even, you know, the building that your favorite restaurant is in. That's a commercial building. You know, there's millions and millions, if not 10 million people probably in America who work in commercial real estate, maybe 5 million. It's some massive number, right? The brokers, the architects, the developers, the financiers. And the idea was, you know, let's create the People magazine of commercial real estate. But let's do it not only of commercial real estate, but by city. So, you know, let's do the People magazine of commercial real estate in Washington, D.C., in Boston, in Dallas, in Houston, in South Florida. You know, basically over 15 years, we built this niche business that covered this community of people that it turns out there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in most cities that have some affiliation with commercial real estate. And this business covered their city. They were over the moon. They couldn't believe that now someone was writing and covering and creating a people magazine for their industry when everyone had always ignored them. And then alongside of that, we built you know, an ev- events platform where we were hosting events for each niche. So suddenly you could be in Baltimore, Maryland, and every month could have an event all about commercial real estate in Baltimore. So we built it from like 200 subscribers who my dad just sent it to. I don't even think they subscribed. No revenue, no sponsors, no employees to, you know, a business that, you know, is in 40 cities around the world, 300 events a year. We sold more tickets every year than Coachella, millions of subscribers. We never raised a dollar. And in 2016, we sold it to a private equity firm. And it's, you know, still thriving today. Amazing. And you're uh, still close with your dad? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, starting a business with a parent is a really beautiful thing to do. And it's also a challenging thing to do because you go from being, you know, father, son, mother, daughter, mother, son, father, daughter, whatever the relationship is, like parent to child to now business partners. You know, in the same way, if you start a business with a spouse, 
You go from being, you know, in one kind of relationship to being business partners. So the dynamic of the relationship changes a lot. And I think it takes a tremendous amount of maturity to go into business with a sibling, someone you're in a relationship with, uh, a parent, because suddenly, you know, you were going to the movies with your parents. Now you're, you know, figuring out who to hire. Now you're trying to figure out what to do, you know, when money's running out in the bank account. Now you're debating how much to spend on, you know, certain services for the business. And and look, overall, it's just it was a beautiful way to spend so much extra time with him that I wouldn't have. The beauty of working together, even though it's challenging, is instead of saying, "Well, I'll see you," you know, in a few days or talk tomorrow, like you now get to be, you know, all in with someone. My dad is, you know, 55 starting a business and, you know, has been working his entire career and I'm 21 and I'm like a bushy-tailed, bright-eyed bunny rabbit who's totally clueless and, you know, basically has no experience. And here's my dad trying to explain to me, like, you can't show up to a meeting like that. And by the way, I often tried too hard. Like I would put on suits to go to my meetings. I thought like all business people have to wear a suit and tie, you know, or I would be late. I was kind of unprofessional. I, you know, when I got irritated, I didn't know how to contain my emotions and channel them in a way that inspired the people around me. I didn't know how to speak directly to people. I would just get flustered. And, you know, just my dad and I had, you know, at times we would have different ideas. You know, he, he would say, well, we should have, like, let's think about how to get this type of office space. And I'd say, no, 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 what if there's a restaurant? I mean, this is literally something we did. There's a restaurant in DuPont Circle that shut down. We could just take over their old lease for six months and work out of a storefront. And you know what? I just sold ads to someone at the furniture company. I'll give them some more ads on a trade and get some free furniture. And we like literally all moved into this storefront in like some, you know, rented furniture. You know, overall, it was a lot of uh, me getting advice from my dad, like him having, you know, just been in business, although he'd never been a founder, like him having so much wisdom to pass down. But then me having, like I had this kind of unbridled exuberance and I had kind of this vision, you know, I was kind of part of this, you know, new generation of entrepreneurs. I had a lot of fresh, interesting ideas that I was always throwing in. And so I think ultimately, like we were a very good uh, co-founder partnership because like two people of this cut from the same cloth, you're not going to get as creative ideas. Like they say, the more diverse the inputs, the better the outputs. So this was like the ultimate diversity set of inputs that, you know, we were both pushing into the table. Got it. And, you know, reflecting on the the journey with your dad, like obviously, you know, you, you ended up leaving earlier than him, I'm assuming, right? Because your journey takes a slightly different path. So how was, how was that sort of exit? How was your relationship with your dad explaining that you want to move on and do something else? I'm reading between the lines here. I'm just looking at a timeline. So you correct me and tell me if this is the right assumption. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you know, what happened is that I was at this company with my dad and what I, what I realized is I don't, Elliot, I, Elliot, basically have no skills. I'm two years short on college. I certainly didn't get an MBA. I certainly wasn't going to night school to learn, you know, management skills, you know, how to use an Excel model, how to build company culture. And I realized I better build some skills fast or I'm going to basically be relegated to life as a salesperson. While I was working with my dad, I started cold calling people that I'd read about to invite them to get together. And what happened is like this side hustle, this little, it was just a side project in the evenings and weekends, 
turned into the first summit event. You know, the first summit event was just something I needed. I was clueless. I didn't know anyone. I never got invited to any conferences or events. I didn't have a peer group of entrepreneurs. So I cold called people that I'd read about. And hence was the first summit event and then the second summit event. And so I kept working with my dad, you know, for the next decade as a board member and of course just brainstorming constantly. But I was able to thoughtfully leave the day to day and start summit. And then my dad and Ryan were able to plow themselves like full on into the business we'd started. Amazing. Okay. So you've kind of taken us on this journey where we're coming to the crux, the pinnacle, one might even say the Zenith or Summit. So take us through this journey. Like you say, um, you know, I, 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 I started cold calling people that I liked, you know, that I was impressed by. And, you know, I decided that, you know, I really like what was for me is building a community and what does any of that mean? Like, you know, who who suddenly realizes that they want to build a community? And how do you sort of, I'm asking this on, on behalf of other entrepreneurs as well, and also as someone, incidentally, um, who in the UK, I built a community in, in, in real life events and all of this stuff as well. And I'm always very inspired by the work that Summit does. So, you know, I'm not asking it entirely on a cynical basis. I'm trying to map out the characteristics and the inspiration that strikes in case other listeners are like, oh, that does sound a bit like me. Maybe I want to build this thing too. Talk to me. Yeah. Well, as, as a clueless 21 year old with no skills, I, I realized I needed, I needed to meet people. I, ne- I needed to meet other entrepreneurs, simply put, you know, being an entrepreneur, it's like being on an island and you know, there's other islands out there, but you just can't see them because you have no elevation. And so you can really feel isolated because in the day-to-day of being an entrepreneur, there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows, but overall it's work. You are working, even if it's something you love, you're working and you're constantly problem solving. At the time, there was an emergent group in 2008, 2009, 2010, an emergent group, a new generation of people, and they could be any age, but of new generation of people building startups, and most of them were built using the iPhone platform. There was like the iPhone moment, right? This period of a few years where anyone could suddenly, and this really was for the first time, become an entrepreneur quickly and easily and get their products to a lot of people. So I started cold calling this emergent group of people from all over the world. And the first event was 19 people, and it really was a niche community. Like, Being an entrepreneur today, it feels like that's the thing to do. I mean, when I was in college, the cool thing to do was become an investment banker. And if you didn't become an investment banker, everybody thought you were a moron. Or a consultant, or go to McKinsey. Exactly. I mean, and really, if you didn't, everyone thought you just like, wow, I'm I'm so sorry, Dan. That's just really unfortunate. You can't get a job at this, right? And today, the dream is, you know, entrepreneurship for, for a lot of people. So reaching out to other entrepreneurs at the time was very niche. Just like, again, today, maybe a few years ago, reaching out to up-and-coming TikTokers would have been niche. Whereas today, that's not niche anymore. So the first event was 19 people. And we, again, I love niches. But by reaching out to this small group, like everyone felt very connected and everyone was very grateful. And I think what I realized was I really love getting people together. You know, after the first event, Everyone said, wow, like we've never been with this community. Could you do another? And I think what it turned out is, you know, the people who came, and when I say entrepreneurs, you know, these are just creators. You know, you can be, you can be making music, you can be a YouTuber, you can be a TikToker, you can, you know, be an artist, you can be an author, but 
for me, I just define entrepreneur as somebody who's just building something. You can be an intrapreneur, somebody within a company who's you know, trying to do these entrepreneurial things within the company. And everyone just loved the first event because they never met other entrepreneurs. And I really have always thought that basically nobody you ever meet is your competition. Like it's very rare someone's really a competitor. Like for the most part, a rising tide lifts all ships, right? Like you can tell them all your secrets, they can tell you all their secrets, and nobody's taken anything from ever anybody else. Yeah, plus execution is nine-tenths of the law anyway. So often these things are, you know, they feel like threats, but in reality, they're just not. Yes. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. And I like this distinction, by the way. Now, as someone who, um, so I've, I've gone the other way. And on reflection, I think you're right for what it's worth. So I started a community here in the UK called Founders without the E. Our joke is we couldn't afford the E, but that's also true. And, um, you know, it's a private network. It's, it's, it's different. It's a nonprofit. It's like all of this stuff. We were really like our purpose, our thinking on all this stuff was completely based on, you know, there was like no website for, for the first six years on purpose, no social media, no nothing. So it was a very, very different end. And it's all like, you know, it's invite only, but you get invited by someone within the community already kind of thing. And whether or not their recommendation stands or adds value is based on their own contribution existing in the community and how they turn up at events and all that kind of stuff. And the only people without invites were actually me and my co-founder, Rob, which was brilliant because it also got rid of the sort of nepotism and meant that anyone that asked us for invites were like, you can't, we don't have any invite status. So quite different and unique, but here's the thing. It was always 
for entrepreneurs, not the businesses, was our distinction. So you're not here for your company, you're here for you. You're going on basically a mental health and personal growth journey. So you are here for you. If your company fails, you stay in. It's not about that. Like, you know, if your company fails and you end up going on a different path, doesn't matter. You went on the path, you tried, you failed, you're here, you're welcome, and you'll forever remain welcome here. The thing that I think is interesting is... um, I actually would agree with you on reflection nowadays that the right definition for entrepreneur was probably more broadly what you have defined it as, which is creator. And I think in my own you know, youth at the time, my own perspective on the world, the fact that I was building venture scale businesses and everything else, I got into my own warped sense of what it meant. Um, so when I hear you say this back to me, I'm like, yeah, I really vibe off that. And, and also more to the point, I can see how it get more diverse, more interesting community, at the end of the day, entrepreneurs are brilliant creators, for sure, but arguably not necessarily as brilliant creators as some artists and, you know, the real essence of creativity, you know, in media. And I think this is where Summit obviously has made its mark and gone 10x on just being outstanding, right, at the top of its game. So that's my preface to the audience as well, to understand how brilliant the vision of what you've created really is. So talk to us a little bit how this goes from like a few dinners of cool people that you want to hang out with and turns into something really fucking remarkable. Well, one thing to think about is that the first generation of entrepreneurs, many of the businesses they built were actually, you could call them like the layer ones on top of the iPhone app store, meaning the iPhone built the app store and then someone built Airbnb. And now tens of millions of people could become Airbnb hosts. Somebody built Spotify. Now the music revolution began. And so that definition of like, well, you are right, Dan, that before 2010, like anyone who is an entrepreneur basically was a tech entrepreneur. But after 2010, you could basically start a business doing anything. And by the time uh, Shopify launched, anybody can become a merchant. Like, I think you're correct, like in those early days, like the entrepreneurs were tech entrepreneurs, but by the time you got to like 10 years ago from today, the definition of entrepreneur just exploded because there just were never in all of history. There was no such thing as an Etsy where tens of millions of people around the world truly were artisanal craft-making entrepreneurs. And that is a really a cool thing. And so I think Summit, the definite, how we've thought of, entrepreneurs over time has evolved with how entrepreneurship has evolved. The first summit event was 19 people. It was totally free. I got some sponsors to pay for it, but the total cost of the event was like $30,000, which is still a lot, but you know, you can cobble together, you know, some five and $10,000 sponsorship checks to make up for most of that. And the second event, I basically repeated the formula and it was 60 people. And I cobbled together some sponsorship checks and, you know, maybe covered whatever the cost was. I, I forget if it was sixty or eighty thousand dollars. And I was able to cover that. And I, I did those first two events just because I loved meeting people. That was it. I mean, in the same way, it would be like saying to someone like, What's your intention for that dinner party you threw last weekend? And they're like, Well, I just like really love having people over. Well, why did you invite those people? Well, I just thought they were interesting. I just wanted to talk to them. You know, that that is how Summit started. I just thought it would be really fun. It's like, well, Dan, how come for that dinner party? Like, why did you spend your own money, you know, to do that dinner? And you must have taken a lot of time to book that cool restaurant ahead of time or to order that food 
well, I just thought it would be fun. So I wanted to invest my time. Like that was the first two events. This is so neat. Like I can meet this generation of creators and, you know, they turned out they were interested in coming to the events. And so after the second event, we realized, okay, there are way more people out there than I realized. Like I actually thought the metaphorical world ended and there was like a, a total size of entrepreneurship and that you would just like effectively hit a wall. And wow, there can't be that many more than 60 people. And what happened is that the growth of entrepreneurship became exponential. Every day, more entrepreneurs were, more people were becoming entrepreneurs. And I realized, wow, I want to do an event for 120 people and then maybe even more than that. And so at that time, I met the folks who became my Summit co-founders. And while I had started it, when you look back objectively, like all I'd done was these two small trips. I wasn't very far along my journey. And so there are these three other these three other guys, Brett I'd met in Washington, D.C. Remember, I was in real estate. He was actually a real estate broker, but he couldn't even get a job as a real estate broker. He was a land broker. And it was in the real estate recession of 2008 when I met him. So he couldn't even have sales to make. And Jeff, one of my other co-founders, he had a job at Macy's. He'd gone to American University, kind of like Brett and I. Like we didn't go to great, you know, we went to fine universities, but you know, it's not like we all met in the Ivy Leagues or anything like that. And then our fourth co-founder, Jeremy, he was in a band. And we always joke, you know, he's living it, you know, on $8 a day, traveling the country in like a beat up bus. And so, the, you know, he'd known Brett from growing up and Brett met Jeff through college. And, you know, basically the four of us came together and I explained like, I have this really cool thing. It's just a fun thing I do on the side. But, you know, what if, you know, we could start selling tickets so we could actually build this community up. Like we could actually build this event business, if you will. We could use the money from the tickets to plan even better, more exciting events. We could use the money to find other entrepreneurial people, other entrepreneurs out there. And so Jeff and Brett and Jeremy agreed to join me on my journey of building Summit. And so after those first two free events, the next event we had to sell tickets to. You know, we basically hit the phones, you know, reaching out to people, explaining, you know, we're building this event. You know, it's not just for anyone. It's for people who started businesses or people who started nonprofits. And it's a chance to meet other people that are going through the same journey and trials and tribulations as you're going through. You know, is this something you'd want to come to? And so like person by person, we basically reached out, you know, trying to launch that next event. So I want to touch on something that you you said in um, in this explanation, which I really like and respect, and it's underrated, which is you'd only done a couple of events and these other people wanted to help you on the journey. Now, in theory, you're the founder, right? And in theory, you know, the co-founder status is a big game, but a lot of talk about this. And in my experience of listening to people's startup journeys and having this conversation with people, there is a lot of ego attached to being the founder or the co-founder and whether or not you came in at this point in the journey or I was here at the start, et cetera, et cetera. And it's different in all kinds of businesses, of course. But one of the cardinal mistakes I feel like startup founders do make 
is being overly protective about this rather than trying to identify the most outrageously perfect people for them to join them on their journey, which is worth letting go of the equity, giving the status and all of the other bits in between because you're just more likely to succeed. I'm impressed. And also I want to hear a little bit more about like, you know, how that felt. It was obvious to do it. Was it difficult to do it? Because this is probably a pivotal moment for you, right? Your business probably wouldn't have gone so well without that dynamic mix of people. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, that, you know, the journey is the destination. And I think everyone would agree with that. So therefore, the journey should be great and it should be fun and you should do it with people you love. And I think there's some great concepts we've picked up over the years. You know, one is solve for success, not for dilution. You know, people are trying to maximize their equity and their ownership. Why? So that one day they make more money in some hypothetical scenario. It doesn't make sense, right? Like what you want to do is equitize all the people around you who are building with you, who are standing shoulder to shoulder. And again, like the, you know, the analogy of when you have a candle and it has a flame on it and you use that candle to light another candle, like the first candle's flame doesn't go out. Now you have two candles with a flame. Like not one time in my entire journey when I've introduced myself as a co-founder of Summit has someone thought I was um, less than something because there were other co-founders. Because I just figured like, firstly, Dan, you have to be objective and have awareness that like just because you've put on two events, it doesn't mean your company's going to succeed. Like, so I got a six-month head start or a year, you know, who cares? Like I still had, it, it turned out it's been 15 years that I was, you know, 6% of the way there or something, even less, right? And it turned out I would have so much farther to go. And as, you know, as I would find out, there were many times that without my co-founders, like it's obvious Summit would have failed. Many, not just once or twice they saved me, but many times. It's obvious that you actually, no matter how many interesting people I met, I still only have a few skill sets. And, you know, one of my co-founders, Jeff, is just brilliant at, you know, design and aesthetic. And he's really actually the one who thinks the best about community and about, you know, speakers and crafting content. And it turns out that, you know, Brett is actually the one who understands sales and how to actually build a community. And it turns out Jeremy is actually the one who would lead all of our technology. It turned out I actually kind of, in many ways, like came more behind the scenes and would operate the business. Looking back, these were really good decisions that I made. Have co-founders who feel like co-founders, not, you know, employees that I kind of try to prop up. But, you know, these were people who would really look me in the eye and tell me when I was wrong. Like, I think by lifting them up, it also empowered them and they really became peers. So give us a TLDR for the people that don't know. What, what is Summit today? Like, how do you pitch it? Someone's like, hey, Elliot, how are you doing? What do you do? You're like, well, I run this thing called Summit, which is... Yeah, Summit's best known as an events company. You know, so Summit for the last 15 years, we've put on these big, epic, surreal events all over the world with thousands of people in all different locations. Um, you know, we've done a quarter mile long dinner table on a mountaintop to chartering cruise ships, you know, We've booked a thousand different speakers from, you know, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos to we've booked hundreds and hundreds of musical acts. Um, so we're at our core, we're a company that puts on surreal, out of the box, just, you know, wild events where you can meet the most interesting people and just hear 
exciting new ideas that are incredibly broad in their ideas from, it can be nonprofit founders, startups, big names. And then today, Summit also has a number of other companies that we've started. We have Summit Junto, where we build people personal advisory boards. So just like an event is a few days a year, Summit Junto is every single month. We we pair people with, we say, like-leveled people. So wherever they are in their career, we're going to put them with seven people at a similar level with diverse backgrounds and build them their own advisory board. So that's a really interesting, different business that allows for like multi-year engagement with a peer group, something I literally wish I'd had growing up. Yeah, I actually I actually do this amazingly. I do this and have done for years and we call it, uh, in Founders, we call this Tribes. By total coincidence, same thing, eight people uh, in total. We get trained and all of this stuff and making sure that we're communicating properly. And, you know, funnily enough, and this is more coincidental than anything, like I've ended up living five doors down from one of the people that we met in this thing. It's very random. But these people, just to, you know, talk about and promote Junto for a second as a concept, these people become your everything. And you prioritize them above everything. So when you're meeting with them and you you are committing to that personal growth process, you know, you're also taking time up for seven other people's diary too. So I think the really interesting challenge that I found with this stuff, which we've been very lucky with, but I certainly imagine you might recognize this challenge, is seven other busy and important people thinking that their calendar is more busy and important than yours. And that social contract you all have that actually know we're all the same. And if we said we'd do this, we're there. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, what we've done, we've tried to take like the summit-esque event design concepts to the kind of age-old forum. You know, so we have, you know, specific hosts that you're and guides that kind of open up the forums for the first few sessions. We do them all online. So they're only 90 minutes long. So you don't have to, you know, drive somewhere, be in the car. And in fact, a lot of the groups will have people from, you know, multiple different continents and, and certainly from across the country, if it's in the United States. So we've tried to bring, you know, the summit background to kind of this, you know, the age old forum. So Powder Mountain, I am familiar with Powder Mountain. Um, I've been invited quite a few times. I'm a useless skier, I, like very mediocre, let's say. So it's just one of, one of the reasons why I haven't actually gone yet. It just sounds absolutely brilliant. But talk to us a little bit about this because I guess the headline that's fun for people is we're a bunch of friends who bought a mountain. Yeah, well, the high level as well is Powder Mountain's been open for 50 years. So in 2011, it came up for sale we were now a few years into the summit journey. So, you know, the events that I've talked about from 19 people, 60, we now done events for 250 people, 750 people, 1400 people. And we really did have a community now that was forming around us. And when I say community, you know, passionate people who'd attended our events who thought, you know, this is a really great thing I enjoy doing. In the same way, if, uh, a restaurant's been serving great food and a great atmosphere for a few years, they might have a community of people that dine at the restaurant a couple times a month. So if the restaurant says, hey, we're launching this new restaurant, the folks will give it a try. So similar, similar concept. And one of our attendees at the events basically pitched me on Powder Mountain. He had this idea that we should come together and we should try to buy this mountain. And you know, that he had a background in, you know, in, in finance and in some real estate development. And, but we had a background in actually building community, bringing people together. 
And so we just, you know, we said, sure, you know, we'll go out there. And we went out two days later after my initial meeting with him. And we just fell in love with Powder Mountain. And we basically decided that over the next year, year and a half, like we were going to give everything we could to actually try to pull off the acquisition of a ski resort. One of the funny things is when we we asked ourselves, well, how would we possibly even figure out how to buy a ski mountain? Brett, who had had that terrible job out of college, remember he couldn't even get a job as a real estate broker. He was actually a land broker. He said, I know how. I could just call my old boss. This is what we did. We helped people buy land and sell land. It was a funny thing that uh, it would turn out you know, what goes around comes around, you know, the idea that here he'd had this, you know, what seemed like a dead end job. And then all these years later, he'd picked up the skills that we actually needed. And we negotiated to buy it for $40 million. But it turned out that we only needed to put $16.5 million down as a down payment. And then we could pay the rest over time. You know, and again, just to that question, the most interesting thing is that the most expensive thing isn't actually buying the mountain. The most expensive thing was actually building the roads and the infrastructure, the water, the sewer, the power, pulling fiber optic internet up. Building in the mountains is just, it's much more expensive than say building in a tropical climate, for example, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Like in a tropical climate, you don't need thick insulation, right? For, For your homes, you know, you might not have very, very strict building codes like on a mountain where once every five years, the winds could whip up to 100 miles an hour. Roads, for example, you can build, you know, we've all driven in, in you know, a tropical climate where you can drive on, um, whether it's just a simple dirt road or whether it's a simple paved road, you know, on the mountains, like there's, and especially in the United States, like everything's regulated. And so, you know, there's regulation widths of the roads, you know, the depths of the road. You know, I think, you know, a road might have to be five inches or six inches deep, you know, and, and also, you know, under the road, you have to pull the water, the sewer, the power. So as just an example, like, you know, a well could be $2 million to build a well and you may need a few wells. Um, you know, roads could be $5 million per mile, you know, and you may, you may have to build miles of roads, right? Because again, you're not just like cutting a driveway with a tractor, you know, you're having to pull the power, the water, the sewer. Then you're having to, you know, you know, might have to put a guard railing, and the guard railing could cost a quarter million dollars a mile or a half a million dollars a mile, right? And so I think a lot of these elements can be way more expensive. And then you know, even things like chairlifts. You know, to your point, like how much is a ski resort? Like, you know, a new chairlift could be from like two million dollars all the way up to like more than ten million dollars, right? Like. These fancy resorts have like these detachable high speed chairlifts that have six people on them. They have bubbles, like just, you know, you know, they might be really. And you don't want to be the guy when people say, is this one of the new chairlifts I've heard about? You'd be like, no, 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 these are really old chairlifts. Don't worry about it. You don't want to be that guy. <laughs> chairlifts are like the thing people might actually be quite specifically interested in being relatively modern and safe. Yeah. So it's just so everything's just, you know, when you do an infrastructure project, they're incredibly expensive. And so. $40 million, relatively speaking, of course, it's an insane amount of money, but it turns out it was much more expensive to build all the infrastructure. So someone could go in the same way you could go, you know, buy a hundred acres in the middle of nowhere for a small amount of money. You know, if you then wanted to build a project there, that that could cost a lot more. We just, 
rolled up our sleeves and actually reached back out to people in this summit who had come to summit events and said, do you know anyone who's an architect, who's a land planner, who's a developer? Do you know anyone you know, who would know anything about water rights? Do you know anything who would know anything about homeowners associations like HOA? Do you know anyone who would know how to build design guidelines? Do you know, you know anyone who would know about the ski industry? So we actually turned around and reached back out to our community, if you will, or the people who had come to our events. And we asked them, can you help us by sharing people you know who we could learn from, who we could hire as consultants, who we could bring on board? And so we just rolled up our sleeves and started learning. And, you know, we started bringing people out there. Like we, we always believed, like, we didn't just want to raise a ton of money and then, you know, in like two years, raise the metaphorical, you know, red curtain and say, here it is. Like instead, what we did is we brought people in to see the vision as it was getting built. We showed them, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's how we want to raise money in this, you know, creative way. We don't want to raise, you know, traditional private equity money. We want to bring the initial homeowners in into a deal where they can get really great deals on the home sites they're going to buy so that our investors are actually bought into the community that we're building. Talk to me about some of the absolute horror stories you've had along the way of building this empire. You know, look, our, our entire journey was about doing things in person. And I think when you're building a business that takes place online, which so many businesses do, it's just not that funny or interesting, all the disasters. But when you're building a business that's in person and the whole business, you know, literally takes place at events with, you know, eccentric, entrepreneurial, big ideas, people coming together, you're just, you're just set up to meet all these personalities and, you know, you're constantly getting advice from people. And, you know, I think when you start a business and you're 21, we, we kind of felt like uh, young Hollywood actors who everyone like sees them grow up through their, you know, juvenile, pimple, amateur phase. And then, you know, they're still, everyone's like watching them grow up, right? Like we didn't just show up and start Summit in our 30s and we were suave and polished. Like we were really beginners, one example would be a meeting Jeff got trying to pitch someone to come to one of the summit events. And, you know, often you can be sitting with someone who's way more impressive than you are, right? And you're just, wow, like I'm really overmatched by this person intellectually. And the thing to do is to ask them questions, you know, just be authentic because they're obviously taking the meeting with you because you're interesting. Tell them your truth, be authentic, ask them questions. What you can't do is try to talk in a sophisticated way about their business you know nothing about. And, you know, Jeff was trying to pitch this person, oh, this and this and this and that. And the person just said, put his hand up like right into Jeff's face. And he just said, you know what, kid? I'm going to stop you right there because you don't know what the F you're talking about. You know, and it was just, you know, and Jeff came back, you know, that night, like we would all go do meetings, pitching people to come to the summit events and we would share the stories. And Jeff, we would say, wow, Brett, how was your meeting? Jeff, how was your meeting? Jeff was like, my meeting was horrible. And we're like, why? And he just like told us that, you know, he was traumatized that his like hero had told him, I don't know what the F you're talking about. And uh, we just started laughing at him and, you know, like it was all, it was all in good fun. And, um, at our summit at Sea Event, I'll just give you one more. Somebody tried to crash the first summit at Sea Event in 2011. Like someone had bought a ticket 
And what they did was like a pass back. Like if you've ever been to a festival, you can just like put your ticket through the fence, pass it back, someone else comes in through the turnstile. But going on a cruise, it's kind of like going through airport security. You know, it's not like crashing an event where it's not a big deal. It's like trying to sneak onto an airplane as a stowaway. And so we had someone do a pass back. They didn't realize that. So when they got led into the ship, it, it alerted the Coast Guard that somebody had effectively stowed away on what's the equivalent of an airplane. And you imagine how, you know, now, you know, it's not just TSA that's involved. You know, they're calling, is real police are now getting involved. And so suddenly, like, we're trying to organize the first day of our event, and there's police on the boat. You know, I get radioed, Elliot, you know, come to the bridge, wherever they, they say to come. And there's police, and the, our, our two guests are in handcuffs. And I'm like, what's happening? And they, they tell me, and I'm like, look, this is fine by us. This person's welcome to come on the boat. Like, we get it's all in good fun. And whoever tried to crash, it's not a big deal. Like, all good. And literally the police like looked at me and they're like, you better shut up or you're going to jail too. You know? And so it's like, I would just find myself in these ridiculous situations like over and over again, you know, no matter what happened, just by the nature of, you know, trying to put on, you know, big events and these big productions, but also like being around characters who are, you know, there's always tons of action around them. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned as well, you know, there's lots of things you've done wrong, lots of things you've taken feedback on, you know, how could we make this better? What's good? What's bad? What has been bad? Like what has been some of the feedback that you've had that you've been like, oh man, uh, it's actually difficult to hear. The feedback that's difficult to hear is always the best feedback. The first thing is to know that anytime someone complains, a complaint is a gift because they're telling you the truth. And so many, many times over the years, like we would get complaints. And I think one of the challenges is right message, wrong messenger. And so they'll have the right message, but they're just really heated and upset. And so that just throws you into a state where you're upset. Like, who do they think they're talking to? How dare they speak to me like this? Or I'm not going to hear that. And I think the first thing is just like getting your mindset into a place where like anytime I'm getting complaints, I need to listen and I need to listen passionately. And that, you know, most complaints I'm getting are not going to be, Dan, I would love to sit with you for 10 minutes to artfully walk you through three things you can improve on. Like instead, when you get complaints, like it just comes at you like gushing. After one of our early events, you know, we called someone who'd been to the first few events and we said, Michael, you know, we'd love to invite you to the third event and here's what's happening. And he just cut us off. He said, guys, I'm going to cut you off right there. I'm not coming. You know why? Because you have no content and I already met all the people and I'm not learning anything at the event. So I'm going to politely decline. And we said, what do you mean? He's like, look, guys, you don't have any content. Like, I don't need to go and network with these people again. Like, I got everything I'm going to get out of Summit. And so we got out of the phone with, off the phone with him and like, we were really upset. He's not coming. He's not buying a ticket. Who does he think he is? You know, over the coming days, we realized like, wow, he's not coming because there's no content. Like, that would be like going to college and having no classes. You know, <laughs> wow, maybe we need to add some content. And we called him back. What do you mean? Like, have you been to events with content? What kind of content? What really works? People telling us, 
you know, I don't like your music taste. It's too party party. There's no singer songwriter music. You know, your guy's food sucks. Like I'm supposed to be coming to this wellness event. What kind of food is this? You know, and us realizing like, wow, we really, really need to, you know, up the food game guys, you know, you want me to come to this, you know, event and pay this money and it's just in a hotel, you better do something different. Okay, well, maybe we'll take over a ship. You know, you're not transparent with, you know, the accommodations or the pricing or, you know, and so I think like our journey was about constant, constant feedback, hundreds, thousands of pieces of feedback, and then creating a culture where all the feedback could flow up to the founders. And I think, People will give feedback, but a lot of companies don't let the feedback elevate through the organization because most feedback probably isn't going to the founders of companies. Just by nature, you know, the founders can be a little intimidating to talk to, but also a lot of people just don't, you know, either have access to them or they don't run into them. So they give the feedback to whoever. And I think, you know, over the years, we put a lot of effort into making sure everyone on the team know, hey, if you get feedback, you know, you can push it right up to anyone in the organization, like we want to hear people's feedback and complaints. And when you look back on the on the journey, right? So you talk about like the best feedback was the you know were, were the pivotal moments and stuff. They're the things that really made a difference. If you think about where you are today and where you're looking to get to, what are the lessons you've learned? What are the insights you've gleaned over the last two years, right? Because you've been the founder of a physical events business over a period like COVID. And, you know, you have uh, yeah, time ahead to think about, you know, what you want to do for the next stage in your career and what you've learned over this experience. I'd love to know, you know, A, how was the last two years for you? What did you do? How did you handle it from a crisis point of view or not? And yeah, how, how has it shaped like the vision for where you're going? Well, the most interesting thing is that if you look at our three businesses, our events business, our Summit Jinto Forum business, and Powder Mountain, which is a ski resort in real estate, our events business, like you described, pause. So we've had no events, really, except for a couple of small ones at the end of 2021 for almost two years. Summit Jinto is pandemic resistant and in fact almost thrives because people need community more than ever. And then at Powder Mountain, like more people than ever wanted to ski. And, you know, wanted to get out into nature because so many of the activities they loved, they didn't have access to. And funny enough, you know, Powder Mountain, we have second homes, like people wanted to buy homes in the mountains. So the pandemic in the last two years was extremely strange and unlucky or lucky for people. You know, yoga studios, you know, had to shut down, but yoga mat sales went up a thousand percent. Gym shut down, but pull-up barbs, you couldn't even, you know, buy one. It was a weird dichotomy and it, and it was really just kind of based on luck or unluck, you know, what business you were in. And so I think, you know, with our event business, and I think what we realized was we had wanted to start Summit Junto for a long time. Like we've always loved forums. I love forums. And we didn't start it until we realized, you know, we were going to have to pause our events for a couple of years. And so Summit Junto is less than two years old. Looking back, it's clear like we should not have been just with an events company. Like our events business was extremely painful. Basically being all in, you know, investing all your money into a new event, having no idea that something like this could possibly happen since it hadn't happened in a hundred years. And then just having everything shut down and almost being, you know, stunned. And I think 
business doesn't, in my experience, has not, our business has never gotten easier, but we've had better systems in place. We've had, you know, a team that was, you know, more dynamic and connected. You know, we've had people that we can turn to. And so I think what we did was, as always, you know, make the most of the situation. And the first thing was we launched Summit Junto. You know, I wish we'd launched it a few years ago because people like really love it. But like, that was the first thing. Like, we're not just going to sit on our hands having no idea what's going to happen. Like, you know, in the same way a restaurant might quickly pivot and launch, you know, delivery. And, you know, it feels good right now to be back to a climate that, you know, people are really excited to gather. What is your advice then to, you know, to entrepreneurs that might be setting out in a, well, actually, I suppose, you know, how you would define yourself, you know, either in a real estate game or a bootstrapped game of self-funding or a community game. You know, there's so many different facets to the way that you built your businesses. What would be your advice to entrepreneurs that are listening? I mean, my favorite thing was having co-founders. Like, I really loved it. And I'm, I'm always surprised that there's debates of whether people should have co-founders or not. I guess there's some people who just don't work well with others and but for me, that that was my favorite thing. Like I just loved having co-founders. I loved having people I could stand shoulder to shoulder with. I, I got to experience what it was like not having co-founders when I tried to start Summit by myself and just the joys of having partners. And I just absolutely loved it. So I, I would encourage people to do things with partners. It's the best. Go find some other seagulls. Yes. Love it. Elliot, it's been a massive pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We were working with a director who's very well respected, and I had lots of thoughts for them about how to do things. They, thank God, were so sweet about it and pulled me to the side and was like, I know what I'm doing, and you need to back off, or I am going to. My life flashed from my eyes. If this director walks, the instructor will walk. I won't get any instructors ever to come back. Masterclass will not work. Holy shit, I need to check myself. That was David Rogier, the co-founder and CEO of Masterclass, the platform where you can learn how to do stuff like cook or write a script from the likes of Gordon Ramsay and Aaron Sorkin. It's a joke how good their teachers are. They really are at the top of their game. But how do you get people like that to make classes for you? Is it just about the money or something else? Find out next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.